Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com Thanks very much indeed for that introduction. I'll pay you back for that one day. Uh, no, seriously, folks, it's great to be here in Buffalo. I, um, I must say your television has enthralled me. Uh, I was watching it earlier today, and it said school leaders meet uh, we're held with uh, health officials. The problem was meat was spelled M-E-A-T. And I really wonder about why your school officials' meat is being given to anyone, let alone your health officials. But still, different countries, different customs. Seriously, though, ladies and gentlemen, on this unseasonably hot Buffalo afternoon, I am very happy to be back here. I've been here before, and it's, it is a lovely city, despite my teasing. Uh, we have before us a very difficult subject to discuss. Why do I say it's difficult? Well, Blessed Emperor Carl and his wife, servant of God, Zita, although they only lived 100 years ago, in so many ways come from a world that's entirely alien to us. Well, what do I mean by that? Well. What I mean by it, I don't know what I mean by it. Something funny is happening. If it bursts into flame, we'll know why. Is that better? Oh, wow, I can echo. All right. The, uh, I, I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, I have not seen this much hardware in front of me since I had my braces taken out. All right. Uh, seriously speaking, ladies and gentlemen, the figure of Blessed Emperor Carl and his wife, servant of God, Emperor Zita, uh, come to us, as I say, from an almost alien world. Why do I say this? Well, you may or may not have been around for the past year and a half, but it, if you have been, it may have come to your attention that to a great degree our destinies are not our own, but in the hands of those who rule us. Now, I don't say this as though it was some deep, dark conspiracy or something like that. In fact, it's been the nature of every people in every country that's ever existed from the beginning of civilization. But we as Americans are not used to thinking of it that way, number one. And number two, we are certainly not used to a leadership that is sacrificial. That is to say, that puts its subjects ahead of its own interests. We are used to heads of state who expect us to die for them. We are not used to heads of state who consider it their duty if necessary to die for us. A big difference. And that by itself would make Carl and Zeta very, very peculiar. But behind them is a whole way of thinking, a whole way of seeing, it is also alien to us. And you know, when I wrote the book, I was faced with a tremendous challenge because unless you have some understanding of the mental picture that they had, of the, the view that they had of their place in the world, their place before God, you can't understand them. And the other difficulty I faced in 
trying to make sense of this story for the modern reader is that many people are fascinated with them for different reasons, but is interested only in a particular aspect. That is to say, there are some who are interested in their sanctity, but not in their political roles. There are others who are interested in their political roles, but not their sanctity. Well, the thing is, ladies and gentlemen, you can't separate them. There is no separation of church and state in the individual. We all of us are made up of body and soul. We all of us have to live both in the world and as subjects of or rebels against heaven. And whether we understand it or not, or realize it or not, Carl and Zita did. And that is the biggest thing you've got to understand about them. They saw themselves, their lives, and their roles in both a natural and supernatural sense. So, where do we start? I think probably the best place to start is, as they say at the beginning, Carl uh, was the Emperor of Austria. Now, emperor is a title we're not really all that familiar with. We think of empire and we think of monarchy strictly in terms of domination and control. That's our national mythos, and it's certainly our academic mythos. The reality is somewhat different. The imperial tradition of which Carl was the inheritor uh, really goes back before the time of Christ. The idea of empire in the sense that uh, Carl understood it really originates with the Persians who were the very first people to figure out that if you want to rule a large area made up of very different peoples, the trick is to rule them according to their own laws and through their own leaders, rather than trying to uh, force them to be just like you. The last empire that tried that was Assyria, and that didn't end up very well. So the Persians pioneered the idea of indirect rule. But they also pioneered another idea, and that was they sought divine sanction for their empire. That's a very, very important thing to bear in mind, the idea of divine sanction. Well, as you know, the Persian Empire fell to Alexander the Great. Alexander's successors divided up the empire and then fell in turn, and they were replaced at last by Rome. And the Roman Empire, more particularly the Christian Roman Empire, was ultimately what Carl and Zeta inherited in terms of tradition. The double-headed eagle that uh, we associate with both Austria and Russia actually comes to us from the late the Christian Roman Empire. The eagle looks east and west. The eagle involves both church and state. Because you see, and this is the other half of the story in a sense, when Theodosius the Great made Catholicism the state religion of the empire, he completed a process that had begun, believe it or not, with Maundy Thursday, the first Maundy Thursday. The old theologians used to say that Christ united on that Maundy Thursday when the sacraments and the priesthood were born. He also united the Davidic kingship with the communio of the church. And from that time on, Catholic monarchy was seen to be a participation in the kingship of Christ. And that's a very important word, participation, because it means 
that the monarch was expected to attempt to conform himself to Christ, not the other way around. Well, one relic of that that went all the way down through uh, our history through the Middle Ages down to the early modern era was that one of the centerpieces of the imperial royal year throughout the European Catholic monarchies was the foot washing on Monday Thursday. The emperor, the king, or the queen would wash the feet of 12 old people. And there'd be a big banquet, they'd give them money and all that. The only remnant of it today is, oddly enough, in Britain, where they did away with the foot washing itself. They still, the queen still gives away the Maundy money and they have a big banquet and so on. But this was a very important thing because it was a, like the coronation rite, it was a way of connecting with the very root of what Catholic monarchy was supposed to be about. It's also interesting that during the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, as Catholic monarchies became liberal monarchies, one by one, bit by bit, place by place, the foot washing was abandoned. Uh, if you remember, in 1816 to 70, the House of Savoy under Victor Emmanuel II conquered all of Italy, including the Papal States. But interestingly enough, his line had succeeded the main line of the House of Savoy in 1830. When they did so, they ended the foot washing and began the experiment of liberal monarchy that only ended in Italy in 1946. Anybody here who's Italian, you may have heard of that. And if you haven't, well, then you don't know Italian history, but that's all right. We're not taught American history, so we can't be expected to know Italian history either, or any other history. Why should we? Nevertheless, we're going to try. So, the imperial idea was a very, very important thing for Carlo Zito, as was the whole notion of Catholic monarchy itself, which was epitomized by the right of the coronation. Now, there too, if you read the coronation texts of the different Catholic coronation rites, the most easy of which to find is in the Pontificale, you can get it online, there you see the Catholic notion of kingship laid out for you. The king lives for his subjects, he lives for the church, he does not live for himself. It's a vocation like the priesthood or like fatherhood. Again, that's the high ideal. And it can very well be said that a lot of kings and princes didn't live up to it. Well, that's true. A lot of fathers and priests don't live up to the heights either. For that matter, and here I'm really going to shock you, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're prepared. Some regular people don't live up to their baptismal vows. It's true. But, nevertheless, unless you have high ideals to try to live up to, you'll never achieve anything. Set a low bar for, of, what your, of your expectations, and I promise you, your results will be even lower. Anyhow, the third thing that's important to bear in mind about both Zita and Carl is that they epitomized each of themselves a thousand years of differing traditions. Carl, as the heir of the House of Habsburg, as I say, represented the imperial tradition, he uh, represented also a good deal of Central Europe, Hungary, Bohemia, Poland, etc. Zita, on the other hand, she was a princess of the House of Bourbon Parma. Her father had been chased out by Victor Emmanuel II from his Duchy of Parma. Uh, 
She was a descendant also of kings in Spain and France and Portugal. So she was very Western European. Between the two of them, in a real sense, they could be uh, seen as representing the whole of Catholic European history. And that too was very much in their minds. Not simply who they were, but what they represented. Now, Carl's history is a peculiar one in many ways, because he was not, when he was born, expected to be the heir to the throne. Reason being that his great uncle, Franz Josef, uh, who you may have seen, I'm sure, the big whiskered fellow, uh, had been emperor since 1848. He was an institution like Elizabeth II is now, or Queen Victoria wasn't her name. There had always been Franz Josef, as far as most people around were concerned. His son, Crown Prince Rudolf, was very much alive and married and had had a daughter, would probably have a son. And if that weren't enough, uh, Carl's father's older brother, Franz Ferdinand, although he wasn't married yet, surely would. So the idea that the little boy, Carl, would ever become emperor was highly unlikely. His parents were not very well matched. And that, that is a big part of the story, really. His father, the old Archdugato, as opposed to his son, the young Archdugato, uh, was very handsome, very debonair, very fun, charming, quick with a joke, and he died of sickness. His mother was very devout, very pious, very dull and very dour. And the two did not get along very well after a few years at all. And their separation had the, so, had the results of, I mentioned. He sought interests elsewhere and died of them. So Carl had a very tough road to hoe from the beginning. And yet, and this is an important point, he loved both his parents and stayed on good terms with them until each of them died. More than that, and this is why he is a good patron and a good example for people from broken homes or, or difficult backgrounds, he got the best out of each of them. From his father, he got the easy manner, the wit, the joking, all that, but not the promiscuity. And from his mother, he got the very deep and sincere piety but not the dullness or the dourness. He took the best from each. And later on, this would bear further fruit because having the experience of dealing with both his parents, he was able to deal with both his great uncle, the emperor, and his uncle, Franz Ferdinand, the heir, who had problems of their own, as we say. Uh, many historians have wondered how he was able to balance those two foreboding individuals and I have to say, it seems very clear to me. He loved them both. He loved his great uncle, the emperor, and he understood why he held the views he held. And he loved his uh, uncle, Franz Ferdinand, and agreed with him politically. In fact, one thing I learned in the course of researching the book, Franz Ferdinand was a much, much more important figure than we've ever given him credit for. Amongst other things, he really was Carl's single biggest mentor, really. Uh, in personal life as well as, as public. Anyway, moving along, 
When Carl was all of five years old, his father and mother took him to a town called Schopron or Udenborg, which at the moment is in Hungary. It's surrounded by Austria, but at the time it was fairly deep in Hungarian soil. And his father there was in the army. Now, they got a, a priest to be his, uh, his tutor, I guess you would say, in Latin and catechism and stuff like that. And the, the priest, in turn, had a friend who was an Ursuline nun. Now, the Ursuline nun was the head of the Ursuline convent school in the town. But she had another line of work. She was, in fact, a stigmatist. You know what I mean by that, ladies and gentlemen? Stigmatic. She had the signs of the passion. And she also had a reputation for prophecy. So, the priest tells her all about his young charge. And uh, she, in turn, says, that boy will one day be emperor. And he will be a reward to the House of Habsburg for all of the good they've done the church. But hell, hell will hate him and will pursue him until his death. So you've got to get everyone you can to pray for him. And the priest did. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the beginning of the Gebetsliga, the League of Prayer for Emperor Karl, which today is shuffling his, his shepherding, I should say, not shuffling, shepherding his cause toward canonization. But most organizations of that sort only start after the individual has died and people begin to notice the holiness. The Gebetsliga began when he was five years old. And they prayed for him when he was a boy. They prayed for him when he became the heir to the throne. They prayed for him when he became emperor. They prayed for him through the war. They prayed for him when he was exiled. They prayed for him after, well, up to the point of his death. And then they began working on his beatification. It's the only organization I know of that kind that has that sort of an arch. Anyhow, so Carl passed his childhood in uh, what was for um, people of that sort fairly normal circumstances. But as the years went by, he came closer and closer to the throne. The first thing that occurred was the death of Rudolf, the crown prince, at a place called Meierling. The affair at Meierling, ladies and gentlemen, was truly the Kennedy assassination of the 19th century. To this day, there are all sorts of different reports. Was it suicide? Was it murder? Franz Joseph said at the time that his son had gone uh, temporarily insane and in a fit had killed himself and his mistress. The Empress Zita maintained until she died that uh, the crown prince had been murdered. I myself heard from the monks of the Abbey of Heiligenkreuz, the Cistercian monastery that received the body, uh, the, the two bodies after the murder of Meierling or the suicide, whatever it was, that all of Rudolph's fingers were broken. Ladies and gentlemen, it's kind of hard to hold a pistol when your fingers are broken. I don't recommend you try it, you know, breaking your fingers to see if it works. Don't do that. But, no, don't, really, please, don't try this at home. But, uh, if this is true, it puts a whole weird and different cast on the affair at Meierling. In any case, whatever happened, it was a terrible tragedy, and Franz Josef had the hunting lodge turned into a Carmelite convent. 
And to this day, the Carmelite sisters at Meierling uh, offer their prayers and daily mass for the repose of the souls of Rudolf and Maria Vetsela. However, that brought Karl closer to the throne. Then there was his uncle, von Swedenbach. As I mentioned, it was obvious that he would marry. But when he chose a wife, there was a problem. Her name was Sophie Countess Kotek. It was a love match. But while she was noble, she was not royal. And so if they married, it would be more dynamic. And that meant their children would not be able to inherit the throne. Franz Josef was very much dead set against it. Franz Ferdinand, just as strong-willed as his uncle, would not budge. Finally, he had his way. The marriage went through, but it was agreed the children would not inherit. Now, here is a sign, ladies and gentlemen, of the greatness of Franz Ferdinand as an individual. A lesser man would have resented his nephew. My brother's kid is going to inherit the throne, but not mine? No such luck. He mentored his nephew, he guided him, he taught him, and amongst other things, he gave him the example of a very happy domestic life. Today, we look at Carl as a patron as well, not just of children who had circumstances, but of fathers and husbands. And it's well we do, but it's important to bear in mind that his example was not his own parents, and certainly not Emperor Franz Josef and his wife, the tragic Empress Elizabeth, Sisi, who was Franz Ferdinand and his Sophie. They, they were the example that he and Zita would follow. Well, the other thing I've got to mention about uh, Franz Ferdinand just now is that uh, when he had been in the army in Hungary, he had a Hungarian tutor, a priest named Father Lanyi. The uh, court bishop, that's the head of the imperial ecclesiastical court, uh, normally would have baptized his children, but he had opposed the marriage. So when Franz Ferdinand and Sophie's children started getting born, uh, with the first one, the bishop insisted that it was his right to baptize the kid. Franz Ferdinand said, no, you won't. Father Lanyi will baptize them. Then Father Lanyi baptized each of the Hornbear children. He's going to come up again shortly. So remember Father Lanyi. All right. Well, Carl had military training. And he had uh, civilian training as well. He went to the uh, Schottenposter School in Vienna. And he went to the University of Prague. But he was also trained as a cavalryman. And he received very, very fine reports. Uh, later on, he would prove his military abilities in the field. But I've, I've read some of the uh, uh, evaluations that his military tutors gave him. And he really, he really uh, took to the military life. And this, too, was an important part of his character. Because he wasn't just an officer in the sense we're thinking of it. Carl had a hatred of empty ceremony. He didn't believe in it. If he would take an oath or go through a ritual, it had to be real. When he was a teenager, as was customary with Archdukes, 
He was made a member of the Order of the Golden Fleece, an order, an order of knighthood, which is still with us. The head of the House of Habsburg still gives it out, like the Order of the Garter in England, or that sort of thing. But Carl insisted on reading the statutes of the order before he would become a member. He would not swear to uphold anything he wasn't informed of. The problem with this is that the statutes were written in old Burgundian French. So <laughs> there were very few people around who could read them. But he got his experts together and he read them. And then and only then did he become a Knight of the Golden Fleece. He also became a Knight of Malta. Chivalry, ladies and gentlemen, meant a lot to him. Knighthood meant a lot to him as a real thing, as a code, as a sort of lay spirituality. And it informed his military career. This is why later on uh, he would be very much against indiscriminate warfare against civilians, mistreatment of prisoners, weird kinds of weaponry like poison gas. He opposed all of that precisely because he saw his role as a soldier as being that, in essence, of a knight. He gets older, and of course, he begins to look around for a wife. Now, it so happened that when he was young, he had a couple of playmates by the names of Felix and Xavier and Sixtus, well, the three of them, uh, Bourbon Parma. They, in turn, had a sister, and it was his sister, Zita, upon whom he fixed his affections. He sort of dilly-dallied a bit from popping the question, but eventually he heard a rumor that somebody else was about to ask, so he, really, he said, I better ask her now before someone else gets her. And so he did. She agreed. They got engaged. She went to Rome to uh, get a blessing on their uh, engagement from St. Pius X, the Pope. He went to England to represent his great-uncle, the coronation of George V. When Zita went to Rome, St. Pius X said, Ah, wonderful to see you, the wife of the next empress. Uh, sorry, the next emperor. She said, uh, Oh, no, no, he's the heir to the next emperor. And St. Pius X looked a little confused and he said, Ah, death, abdication, I don't know. It was something that would be remembered many years later. So, they get married in uh, 1911. And it was quite the affair. If you see pictures of it, the few, among the few, you'll see Franz Josef smiling. But in almost every picture of that wedding, he's grinning ear to ear, because at last, he had an heir who was married to a marriageable lady who could produce more heirs and ensure the survival of the House of Habsburg. Uh, when they got married, after they were married, Again, remember what I said about his not believing in empty ceremony. For both he and Zita, marriage was a sacrament, a means of salvation. And so he said to her afterwards, now we can begin to help each other get to heaven. And they began to have children fairly rapidly. And they continued to do so throughout their married life. Um, this is why, again, he is seen as a patron of fatherhood and of uh, husbanding. I don't want to say husbandry, because we believe animal husbandry. But at any rate, he, uh, he really threw himself into it. 
as a religious duty as well as a joy. I was able to do both, you see. We tend to think, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I take, once again touched on the theme of how he can't separate different aspects of his life. We do tend to. We tend to think of things that are our duty as being automatically causes of unhappiness. But for both Carl and Zeta, true happiness lay in fulfilling one's duty, even if it was unpleasant and annoying in the immediate. And that was a theme that would run through their lives until their deaths. So, their heir is born, young Otto, and then, well, I'm going to take you back to our friend Bishop Lanyard, as he's become. It's now June 27th, 1914. And Bishop Lanyard, who's now the Bishop of Arad, off in the Banat, uh, goes to bed. And he has a dream. And in the dream, he gets up. He goes downstairs, as he would normally. And there on the silver platter, where he normally would find the letters laid out, he sees a black-bordered envelope with the archducal crest. In his dream, he picks it up, he opens it up. In those days, ladies and gentlemen, he would have these cards that on one side would have a sort of black-and-white photograph. And on the other, whatever message the sender had written. With this card, instead of a black and white photograph, there was what appeared to be a strange moving picture that showed Ferdinand and Sophie getting shot in a moving car. And the message from the Archduke was, my dear father, my dear Bishop Lanyi, I'm very sorry to have to inform you, my wife Sophie and I have been murdered at Sarajevo of the state. Please pray for the repose of our souls and look after our children, your very own friends. He woke up and he was utterly horrified. He wrote down everything he had seen in the dream, stuck it in an envelope, put it in his desk, and then began reciting the rosary for the couple. Three hours later, the valet comes in. He's still saying the rosary. He tells him it's 6 a.m. He offers mass for, the, for not the repose, he offers mass for them. Remember, this is the 27th. They're still alive. And now it's the morning of the 28th. He goes downstairs. The plate, fortunately, has no mail in it, for which he was extremely grateful. And he goes about his day. But later in the day, the news comes from Sarajevo that the Archduke and Arch, uh, the Countess have been murdered. He runs upstairs, pulls the envelope out of the desk, and reads what he had written. But he found something strange. The Archduke's message, when he was writing it, he unconsciously forged the Archduke's handwriting. A very well-attested story, ladies and gentlemen, and a very bizarre one. But not nearly as bizarre as what was about to fall on the peoples of Europe. Now, I have to say here that, as I mentioned, Franz Ferdinand was a very remarkable individual, and his loss was a great loss both to Austria-Hungary and to Europe and the world as a whole. Not just because his death kicked off the war, which was bad enough, but because he was a man of vision, a vision sadly lacking in the Austria-Hungary of his day. In, ter in terms of internal politics, he wanted to federalize the empire to, uh, so that the subject peoples, so the Hungarians, Slovaks, the Romanians, the Croats, and so on, would have autonomy of their own, 
and uh, be reconciled to each other and to Habsburg rule. He also had very different ideas in terms of foreign policy. Although he was very friendly with uh, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, he was aware that Kaiser Wilhelm did not really rule the country, and he was wary of the German alliance. He was interested in pursuing alliances with Russia and Britain, in hopes perhaps of keeping uh, Germany and France quiet and Europe at peace. Because, you see, he was also, as was the case, as was the case in, in every country in Europe, there was a war party and a peace party amongst the top people. And Franz Ferdinand was the leader of the peace party in Austria-Hungary. He was also extremely popular among the Slavs in the empire. And that was why the head of the Serbian secret police, Apis as he was called, I, I can never pronounce his, uh, his real name, but look up Apis secret police and uh, Franz Ferdinand, or Serbia Apis and Franz Ferdinand, you'll get his name all right. He was devoted to the idea of a greater Serbia that would include all the South Slavs of the empire. He was very much afraid that if Franz Ferdinand ever became emperor, their dream would never come to pass. So, having engineered the murder of the king and queen of Serbia in 1903, he was an old hand at this kind of thing. And he was the man behind the assassination. Interestingly enough, two years later, he would be executed by the Serbs themselves. But that was then. Right now, in the immediate, in 1914, the Austrians were really, really demanding some sort of restitution. The peace party had lost its leader. The war party wanted desperately to go to war with Serbia. One of the things I should point out to you, ladies and gentlemen, is that these war parties in each country didn't exist purely because they enjoyed the idea of bloodshed. It's because every country in Europe suffered from, depending on the country, varying internal social problems and pressures. And the idea of each war party was that if they went to war, everyone would rally around the flag and their internal problems would dissipate. None of them really understood what a modern war would mean. They probably should have studied our American Civil War rather more closely. Because everything from trench warfare to submarines and aerial warfare and Gatling guns, machine gun, we pioneered. Oh, and unconditional warfare, that, uh, unconditional surrender on That was another thing we invented for our civil war. They looked at that and uh, added 50 years of technology. They might have come up with a better idea of what was facing them. Unfortunately, what they had in their minds was Napoleon and the Crimea. Well, at any rate, the, uh, the Austrians demanded, and again, if you could imagine a situation where the Vice President of the United States was assassinated in San Antonio by a group known to be in cahoots with the Mexican uh, Secret Service, that was kind of the position they found themselves in. But the Serbs had a problem, or at least the Serb government did. The problem they had was that they were facing elections in November, and they could not afford to look weak in front of Austria-Hungary. So they accepted all of the Austrian demands, save one. And the war party in Vienna jumped on the idea and declared war. Now, Karl, as a soldier and as a uh, loyal subject of his uncle, of his great uncle, 
was of course ready to do his duty, but he was very much against the war. Much as he had loved his uncle, he, uh, he saw what his uncle saw, that at the very least, war would damage Austria-Hungary severely, but not destroy it. And what he told his wife at the outbreak of the war about going, going to war in alliance with Germany was that it would be like an iron pot and a clay pot knocking along. The clay pot would be smashed. But nobody listened, and of course, he was not in a position to influence much of anything. So, Austria declared war on Serbia. Russia declared war on Austria. Germany declared war on Russia. France declared war on Germany. And to get at France, Germany invaded Belgium, and since Britain had guaranteed Belgium's, Belgium's neutrality, Belgium, or Britain rather, declared war. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was how the, world, the First World War started. Uh, it's interesting that in those last weeks of 19, uh, 1914, Sir Edward Grey, who was the uh, British foreign minister, was walking down the street at dusk, at dawn, dusk. They were, anyway, they were turning off the street lamps. And he said, very famous saying, but worth remembering, the lights are going out all over Europe. They shall not be relit again in our lifetimes. The argument could be made, ladies and gentlemen, that they have not been relit yet. Because you see, so many of the ills and evils we deal with now came to us from that war. According to Winston Churchill, who is not what you would uh, really call a German apologist, uh, it was in fact Woodrow Wilson's insistence on the deposition of the Habsburgs and the Hohenzollerns and the Wittelsbachs and the rest of them that led directly to the rise of Hitler. And so World War II, and so the Soviet Union in the center of Europe. Uh, and that, I'm sorry to tell you, is all on us, or at least upon our president, Mr. Woodrow Wilson. And that's something, you know, we may not like it, but it is what it is what it is. Anyway, moving along, as far as Carl was concerned, what did the war mean? Well, initially, his, uh, his great uncle, who didn't always trust, shall we say, his senior officers, by the way, the two senior officers, the chief of staff, the Duke of Teschen, and his deputy, uh, Conrad von Hützendorf, Franz Ferdinand had thought were utter incompetence, and had worked very hard to try to get replaced. Uh, sadly, he did not succeed by the time he was dead. So, Carl became known as Carl the Sudden, because he would appear at the front wherever his great uncle told him to show up and find out whatever was going on. He showed the most incredible personal bravery. And this was true a little bit later on when he began to assume at different times and places direct command of troops on the front. Whether it was the Italian front, the Russian front, the Romanian front, he never spared himself. And a very famous story when he was on the Italian front, there was a flash flood and uh, a lame soldier who had been deputed to guard some horses was washed away by the, by the water, just grabbed him. And uh, the then heir to the throne jumped into the water and rescued him at great risk to his own life. But that was the kind of man you see Carl was. We go back to the thing of chivalry. He was much beloved by the common soldier, but not always by the generals. 
One of those common soldiers, an NCO, was an ethnic Pole whose name was Wojtyła. Keep Sergeant Wojtyła in mind. So, the war goes on and it goes from bad to worse. Uh, and then in 1916, his great uncle dies. And he is now emperor. He's faced with several crises all at once. He wants to federalize Austria-Hungary. The Hungarian government, the uh, liberals under Tisza, the Madurizers, uh, nationalists, are not keen on that at all. And they uh, kind of have a whip hand because Hungary is the breadbasket of the empire. And basically, Tisza declares to him, the Prime Minister of Hungary, that Hungary will give neither food nor help unless he's crowned king with the holy crown of St. Stephen and swears to maintain the status quo inviolate. Well, he did it. And again, before doing so, he and Zita poured over the coronation ritual to make sure they could keep the oaths. And they did. He was the last Catholic king in Europe to be crowned with a Catholic coronation. With the exception, I suppose, of uh, the popes down to Paul VI. Uh, Paul VI being the very last in 1963. Anyway, uh, so the Hungarian situation was a bit dicey, but there was a, it was worse with his allies because the Germans, the German general staff, and particularly its leadership, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, were now the real rulers of Germany, not Kaiser Wilhelm. So, from time to time, they would come up with bright ideas that would end the war by Christmas. Poison gas didn't work. Tanks, nah. One thing after another, nah. As soon as he became emperor, they had, they had a meeting with him to explain they'd come up with a surefire idea this time. Indiscriminate warfare against neutral civilian ships going to Britain. This would starve the British out. And Carroll said, I don't think that's a very good idea because it will bring the United States into the war. And if that happens, we can't win. And the German response was, well, too bad you feel that way. The U-boats have already gone out. The whole charade of consulting him was just that, a charade. So they had other smart ideas, too. We'll destabilize the Italians and the Russians will send in a top communist to destabilize them. Well, he didn't think that was a good idea either, so he didn't allow the Italian to be sent, because he would have had to go through Austria through Austrian soil. And he would not allow the sealed train with Vladimir Lenin to go through Austrian territory. So Lenin had to be sent through Finland instead. But he warned his allies, not only is that wrong as far as the Russians and the Italians go, Remember what I said about being chivalrous. It can't stop at the borders. It will blow back against us. But they knew better, as so many people did. Uh, didn't turn out so well. He knew that Austria-Hungary needed peace, and they needed to get out of the war, and the war needed to end. And so, through his brothers-in-law in the Belgian army, he initiated secret negotiations with the Allies. 
you read the book, you'll, I go into great detail about them, and I, I won't bore you with the details now, but suffice to say that the biggest problem we had in pursuing peace is that when the Allies wanted it, it was because they weren't doing well, and his German allies would never, never hear of it. And then his German allies were amenable to it. The British and French and the Americans and so on didn't want it because they were doing well. So between the two of them, nobody wanted peace, really, except on their terms. Only Karl and Pope Benedict XV wanted, for want of a better word, an equitable peace. As things went on, the blockade of the Central Powers got worse and worse, and starvation, as 1917 became 1918, became dominant in both Germany and in Austria-Hungary. Oh, one thing I, sorry, slipped my mind, but I should tell you, it's a fun story. I like fun stories. In 1917, when Woodrow Wilson declared war on Germany, he did not declare war on Austria. But later in the year, when the Austrian forces smashed the Italians and uh, were coming close to taking Venice, he decided he had to rush American troops to back up the Italians. The problem was that we were neutral in that war, in the war between Austria and Italy. And see, I, again, I, I've shocked you a little bit earlier this evening, I'm going to shock you again. Back in those far-off superstitious days, we had something called a declaration of war, which was required if you were going to deploy large numbers of American troops. And Congress had to do it. I know, I know what you're saying. But they had something back then called a constitution. And that thing, it, was, it really got in the way a lot. So now we very wisely put it aside and don't bother with that. But in those days, they were superstitious. You know? They had marriage and stuff. Anyway, the point is that the, uh, the problem they faced was how do we get into the war against Austria? Fortunately, a group of survivors of a torpedo ship in the Mediterranean were picked up by the crew of the U-boat that sunk them and deposited in a neutral port. They made their way back to Washington and appeared before the Senate and testified that they had been torpedoed by an Austrian U-boat. Oh, how did you know it was an Austrian U-boat, was the question. Oh, oh the, the uh, captain and the officers and the crew were all speaking Austrian. Ladies and gentlemen, have any of you ever heard Austrian spoken? No, you haven't. Nobody has except those witnesses. Only three, however, of the senators voted against it. One of whom, however, said that it is an intolerable state upon the honor of the United States that we have declared war upon a country that has never done us any harm on the strength of testimony that would not hold up in the court of law. But Mr. Wilson was keen on getting into the war, and he had reasons for it. Woodrow Wilson, ladies and gentlemen, was a very driven man. He had accepted a terrible demotion to become president of the United States. Uh, he had been president of Princeton University and had to step down and accept that government job when he was, you know, when he uh, beat the Republicans. And this, you know, it was a scar, a very, very scarring thing for him. But he had a real drive and desire to remake the map of Europe in accordance with his own vision, if that's the word I want, dream. 
The problem, ladies and gentlemen, when someone who doesn't really know what he's doing has the power to make his dreams reality, is that his dreams become nightmares for other people, as Winston Churchill suggested. Uh, there's a lot more that went into this, the way that the Allies, uh, specifically Wilson, uh, buffed up the nationalists of the empire, the Czechoslovak uh, people like Thomas Masaryk and so on. But suffice to say, they would not have dominated had Wilson not made it very clear that unless the Habsburgs, the Hohenzollerns, the rest of them were gotten rid of, the blockade would not end and they could starve. He was not interested in peace with the existing governments. And that too, ladies and gentlemen, uh, moving aside for just a moment from our actual topic, that was a new thing. Uh, in Western history. The idea, not simply you fight a war, you beat your enemy, you make, you make a treaty, and you know, you pick up your blocks and go home. The idea that we had an obligation to remake our foes. This was a new thing. And as we've seen in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places, perhaps not always the wisest idea. But fortunately for us, we never learned. That is fortunate, isn't it? Anyway, move along. So, as the, uh, the old Irish policeman would say, nothing to see here, folks, move along. You've all got homes to go to, nothing to see here, now go along. Well, as, uh, as it happened, thanks to a man called Carl Renner, who uh, in the book is a very unique individual, he manages to betray his country three times. Once by betraying his emperor, twice by uh, collaborating with Hitler, and third, by collaborating with Stalin, what you might call an equal opportunity trader. You know, he didn't really care who he was selling out to so long as he could sell, which makes business sense anyway. Uh, long and short of it was that uh, it was obvious that Carl and Zita and their family would have to leave Austria after the end of the war. They did. They moved on to Switzerland, and for a year or so, they had a very happy life. No, more than a year, actually, a year and a half, almost two years. They had a very pleasant life in Switzerland. They had some money, not a lot, but enough to live on. And that, incidentally, was the time when Carl's children really got to know him. I uh, knew his son, the Archdugato, somewhat. And he always said that uh, he had never really gotten to know his father well until after they went to exile. But once they did, his father, who again was used to affairs of state and all that, took up his children's education and care quite as much as he'd done anything else. Took them on skiing trips and this sort of thing. It was a very, personally speaking, a very happy time for them. Unfortunately, uh, their former empire was in a very bad way. And Hungary in particular was suffering. In 1919, the uh, interim government of Count Karolyi was overthrown and replaced by a Soviet republic under Bela Kun. Uh, Bela Kun, yeah, not a raccoon, but Bela Kun. There's a difference, although you might have a hard time telling, telling the difference. But Bela Kun uh, instituted what was truly a reign of terror. And in fact, the Tisas, uh, the, the emperor's great uh, nemesis, Istvan Tisa, 
was executed by the communists. So at least he'd gotten rid of Karl. That was something, right? So eventually there was a counter-revolution uh, spearheaded by Admiral Horthy, who had been the last commander of the Austro-Hungarian Navy, the sailor on horseback, as they called him, uh, and the Romanians. So the communists are gone, but Hungary is prostrate and miserable. At this unfortunate juncture, a couple of things came into play. One is that Horthy was regent of Hungary. The Hungarian kingdom had been re-proclaimed after the Soviet Republic was overthrown. Now, Horthy was well known to Karl. He, in fact, he'd been his ADC at his wedding. And on the day in, uh, in late 1918, when Karl gave up the active governance of Hungary, never advocated, uh, Horthy came to him and said, I will do anything I can to the point of dying to put you back upon your throne, Your Majesty. And he swore this, literally swore this up and down. Remember what I said, what Karl thought about oaths? Well, he didn't just think about that for himself. He thought that if you swore an oath to him, just like if you swore an oath to you, it meant he had to try to do it and die trying. He felt the other way was also true. So, he figured, uh, looking at the way Hungary was at, the point, at that point in time, that something needed to be done. And then he was contacted by Aristide Briand, the French premier, who had gotten to know him through the peace negotiations. And he said, I'll make you a deal. Because he, he was afraid both of a resurgent Germany and of Italy becoming dominant in Eastern Europe. So he said, I'll make you a deal. If you can get back to Hungary and take it over again, we will guarantee, we being France, we will guarantee your safety against your neighbors who are dependent upon us militarily, and we'll prop up your economy with credits. But on the downside, if you fail, we'll deny any of this. So Carl said, all right, sounds like a plan. And in May of 1921, sorry, March of 1921, he embarked on a solo adventure. And I got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, if you're familiar with a story called The Prisoner of Zenda, it reads like that. He, uh, he smuggled himself out of Switzerland. He caught the Orient Express. And believe me, ladies and gentlemen, if you're going to have intrigue and mystery and glamour in interwar Europe, the Orient Express had to be involved. It was just in the script. Takes the Orient Express to Vienna, knocks on the door of a friend's house who's not expecting him, and says, I'm here. Take me to Hungary. My friend says, all right. And he did. They go down to Hungary. They managed to cross the border, although they're recognized. And it was funny, the Austrian border guard, as the emperor was passing through, he turned to uh, Erdödy and said, you know, I'm, I'm, letting you go, I'm letting you go through, but did you really think I wouldn't recognize the man who pinned a medal on my chest? Whatever you're doing, God go with you and his majesty. So, there was a lot of that kind of thing. And eventually, after uh, several, several amusing adventures, he got to Budapest, he confronted Horthy, and he said, I'm here, I'm ready, fulfill your vow. And Horthy said, no. So, he had to go back to defeat. 
He tried a second time in October. This time he knew there would have to be fighting. And there was, but unfortunately, due once again to treason on the part of, of uh, a couple of military officers, once again he failed. And this time, the Allies had had enough. And they said to him and his wife, if you do not renounce the thrones of Austria and Hungary and all your other realms, uh, we are going to send you out of Europe because we can't trust you here. They refused. So they were sent to exile on a small island in the Atlantic called Madeira. But whereas in Switzerland, people have been able to send them money, the Allies cut him off from any support from the outside. That meant he had no money. No place to stay, not enough for proper food, not enough for proper medicine. A local person in Madeira loans his summer cottage but the summer cottage really was not built for winter weather. And so, he caught pneumonia. Now, all during that last, those last months, as through the rest of the exile, as through the war, and on and on, the imperial family kept up their faith, went to mass every day when they could, prayed the rosary together as a family, venerated the sacred heart, the... Uh, Passion, the Holy Cross, all the so-called Pietas Austriaca, the Austrian piety. But it was obvious his time was coming. And remember in those days, ladies and gentlemen, they didn't have antibiotics the way we did. What they had were uh, treatments that were very, very painful. And to us, it seemed barbaric. Cupping, which was placing a hot cup on your back in hopes of pulling the infection away from your lungs. It didn't work. But all through it, he didn't complain. And often, he said, I am suffering now that my peoples might come back together. That's always impressed me, ladies and gentlemen. I'll tell you why. It was in great part because of his peoples and his refusal to abandon them. But he was dying in this fashion. If I had been he, I think I would have died cursing him but I'm not a saint. So, he said this again on his last day. He had stayed away from his children the last couple of weeks because he didn't want them to catch what he had. But he told his wife to send in young Otto so that, as he put it, we can see how a Catholic and a emperor dies. And that was a memory I can tell you from personal knowledge the Archduke never forgot. And then he said to his wife, who was at her wit's end, she now was pregnant the eighth time, five months. Because they'd continued, ladies and gentlemen, to have children all through this horrific time. Uh, she was at her wit's end. She didn't know what she was going to do once he was gone. And he told her, you must contact the king of Spain. I've spoken to him today, and he has agreed to take care of you and the children. And she said, yeah. <laughs> you couldn't possibly have spoken to the king of Spain. Never mind. When I'm buried, contact him. He died. And after he was buried and had the funeral, she did indeed contact the king of Spain, whose response was, I will send the battleship to pick you up. Now, the Entente, specifically the British, 
told the king of Spain, we are not releasing them unless she abdicates the throne for herself and her children. And the king of Spain said, I am sending a ship to pick them up. They are going to get on it. If you fire on it, you are at war with Spain. Now that might not sound like much of a threat, ladies and gentlemen, because Spain was not what you would call a great power at that time. But the British earlier that year had backed down from a, uh, a confrontation with the Turks. Britain was bled white and the British public were not going to stand for another war. So the ship came, picked them up, and took them back to Spain. It took the trade to Madrid and proceeded as chatting with King Alfonso. And she asks, you know, out of curiosity, we much appreciate what you did, but why did you do it, even to the point of risking war? And he said, well, I'll tell you, the day they told me your husband was dying, I had this sudden feeling that if I didn't look after you and your children, one day the same thing would happen to my children and my wife. And so I resolved that whatever happened, I would get you out of there. And then she told him what her husband had said, and they just kind of rolled their eyes at each other. Well, she and the children spent the next seven years in Spain, and then moved to Belgium. Uh, Otto, the oldest son, was educated quite well, quite carefully, uh, and for reasons, again, you can read about, ended up acquiring a lot of intelligence about the Nazis, which he delivered to Ambassador Bullock in Paris in 1933, the American ambassador. That was sent to Roosevelt, who told him, uh, told Ambassador, you tell the young prince that if they ever need a place to stay, dot, dot, dot. In 1940, the Germans invade Belgium, the family flees, and I mean, it's a, a real wild tale as to what it was like of getting out of there for them, but they did. They get to Portugal and eventually to the United States, and then most of the family go to Canada. Otto stays in uh, Washington advising FBI. They had all sorts of extraordinary adventures after that. Uh, most notably, when Otto's two younger brothers graduated from Laval University in 1944, he sent them to the Tyrol to fight with the resistance against the Nazis. In the meantime, Karl Renner, the great socialist, was sitting in Vienna collaborating with the Nazis. When the war was over, Otto came to Innsbruck in the Tyrol, which was occupied by the French, and he and his two brothers were there. Stalin picks up Renner and makes him chancellor of the country. And Renner invokes the so-called Habsburg Law and expels the three archdukes from the country. Virtue is its own reward sometimes. So, much to everyone's surprise, there was an election in 1945. The socialists and communists were defeated. Renner's out of a job. Stalin insists that he be made president. The Allies acquiesce, and Karl Renner dies in 1955 as president of Austria, having sold out his country three times. Wonderful, wonderful record. Anyhow, Zito would live until 1989. Now, remember I mentioned Sergeant Wojtyla? Well, he had a son after the war, whom he named after his emperor, Karol. He would become St. John Paul II, the Pope. And when Empress Zita lasted until 1989, he met her after he went to the papacy. He said, at last I have the honor of meeting my Empress. And he beatified Carl. But you know what? 
This is the only time I know of in history of a man creating his own patron saint. Think about it, ladies and gentlemen. It was named after him, and then he made him into a blessing. So that's uh, kind of a weird tale. Anyhow, so he was beatified. Now, one thing that's important to remember is that although the, the debates they have been collecting stories of miracles for a long time, the first one that was able to be subjected to the rigorous requirements of the Vatican's investigations was in 1956. A Brazilian nun who was Polish, uh, she was in Brazil, she was a Polish lady, uh, and was actually a Republican. She didn't like the Habsburgs at all. But nevertheless, uh, she was dying of an incurable cancer. And a friend of hers said, why don't you try praying to God? So she had nothing better to do, so she did, and recovered completely. Her name was Sister Maria Zita. And as soon as the Empress found out about this, she said, oh, there he is again, always thinking of me. True story. Anyhow, the second miracle occurred after his beatification in an ancient, God-protected medieval city called Orlando, Florida. Well, it has an ancient castle. Well, all right, it's got Walt Disney World. Anyway, the point is that he, uh, this lady, a non-Catholic, she was a Baptist lady, is dying of cancer, and she had a friend whose uh, daughter, I think, had been to the beatification, and she had a book of prayers. So she gave the prayers to her friend and said, try this, you know, nothing, nothing better to do, you're, you're on your way out. So and it was almost that crude. She uh, prayed them, and she recovered, which is why one of the 17 shrines to Kaiser in the United States is in the Cathedral of Orlando, Florida. So he has his two miracles. I, would, I will not be terribly surprised uh, at his canonization. I hope it occurs sooner rather than later. Zeta's cause, uh, she died, as I said, in 1989, was introduced, I think, about 10 years ago. She's a servant of God. They're working on her cause as well. But here's the interesting thing. Carl's feast day is not the 1st of April, which is the day he died. It is the 21st of October, which is his wedding day. And I have absolutely no doubt that uh, if as and when Zita is beatified, it'll become their joint feast day. Uh, which, again, is something I, I look forward to seeing. Um, so now we bring it up to the present. I've talked about Carl is a patron for children with bad homes, a patron of fathers, a patron of husbands, a patron of rulers, and a patron of soldiers. All that is true. But you know, he has a bigger significance to us than that. All of his public life, he faced betrayal from people he should have been able to count upon. So do we. All his life, there were forces, political, etc., that he couldn't control, and that nevertheless determined what he had to deal with, just like for us. And the thing about both Carl and Zeta is that they're not simply useful examples or good historical figures to know. They are living people 
It was a recession we can ask for. And to have been through what we are going through, only worse. So, for a few of us, these times may seem somewhat uncertain and troubled. A little bit. In church and state. All the more reason to get to know and to, get, and to pray the Karan Zita for their help. Because I assure you, they were modern enough to, uh, as we Californians like to say, feel our pain. But classic enough to be examples to aspire for. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, this is the thing that really is so important about them. They never despaired. They never lost hope. They never became bitter. As I've said, I couldn't have done it. But theirs is the example to follow in the midst of the horrors that surround us. So get to know them, both intellectually and in terms of prayer. Uh, I can tell you this much. It's easy to look at their lives and say, oh, how tragic. Not true. He's a blessed, she's a servant of God, but like it is, they're both in heaven, enjoying the beatific vision, which we all aspire for. Their lives are no tragedy. The only tragedy is that they were unable to succeed in this world at attempting what they tried to do. Had, they attempted, had their attempts succeeded, our lives now, I have absolutely no doubt, would be much better than they are in many different ways. But it's not the way it worked. We don't know and we cannot know this side of the grave, God's designs. All we can do as they did is the best we can with what we have and saying true what we know to be true. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, the lecture is over questions. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com